morning we take the topic of the perfecting of the saints for our consideration and prayerful consideration. Let's look now at God's Word in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith ye were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as also ye were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But unto each one of us was the grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now this he ascended, what is it, but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints unto the work of ministering, unto the building up of the body of Christ, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and craftiness after the wiles of error. But speaking truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplieth, according to the working and due measure of each several part, maketh the increase of the body unto the building up of itself in love. And thus far the reading of God's word. Of all the titles that are used for Christians as we find them in the Bible, of all of those epithets that are used for followers of Jesus Christ, I think perhaps the most distressing, the most troubling, is the title saint. You see, Christians are called a lot of things in the Bible. They're called Christians. They're called children of God. They're called the faithful. They're called believers. They're called the people of God. And we could go on and on and on, but there is this title also that's used for Christians, the saints. And that sometimes can be very distressing because, you see, and my first point this morning is, the saints are often not so saintly. We may be called saints, but so often we don't show a very saintly character. However, saint was a popular designation of Christians by Paul. He opened the Ephesian letter, if you turn back to Ephesians 1, by addressing his audience as the saints that are at Ephesus. You see that in the opening verse of the book. The saints that are at Ephesus. What does saint mean? Well, the word saint means one who is sanctified, one who is set apart or holy, and thus often saint can be translated holy one or set apart one, sanctified one. The use of the word saint in the Roman Catholic tradition, as well as the popular treatment of that word in our culture, have created, I think, all too readily some misconceptions, though, of what the word saint means. You see, people often think of a saint, or the saints, as a special subgroup of the super-spiritual, 
a special subgroup in the church of those who are, uh, in, in some special, exalted way, spiritual followers of Jesus Christ that are worthy of our veneration. And so in the Roman Catholic Church, we hear of St. Christopher, for instance, and, and St. This and St. That, because certain individuals have been singled out for their spirituality and are now to be venerated by the church. In our own culture, more broadly, not just in the Roman Catholic tradition, but in our culture broadly, we think of saints as special individuals who are distinguished by their pious character, who are distinguished by their benevolent treatment of others. And so we'll say things like, well, she was just a saint for helping neighbors clean up after the flood. And so you see how saint is used for someone whose character is especially pious, and that person should be singled out from all the rest. The word saint, or holy one, however, does not point first and foremost to the character of the individual who has that title. And that, I mean, I can say that, and then I can say it again, and then maybe I could even say it again and hope it will sink in, but we are so accustomed to using saint for an especially holy person that the biblical use of that expression is hard for us to get used to. The word saint in the Bible points first and foremost to being separated unto God, being consecrated unto God. And in the Bible, because that act of separating takes place by divine choice, and because that act of being consecrated unto God takes place by His intervention in our lives and not by human achievement, not by human piety, not by good works, not by human decision or anything in ourselves, the emphasis in the biblical use of the word saint is not always on someone's godly character because it's not godly character that makes us saints. That may sound a little strange. It's not godly character that makes us saints. The term does not regularly appear in Scripture in absolute form. Now, those of you who are grammarians or mathematicians will know what I mean by absolute form. That means unqualified. You don't find in the Bible, at least not very often, the expression, the saints, period. What you do find are expressions like, the saints of the Most High God. Or, you'll find constructions such as, the saints in Christ Jesus. Paul begins in 1 Corinthians that way, the saints in Christ Jesus. And in Philippians 1.1, he speaks of the saints who are in Christ Jesus. You see, the saintness, the consecratedness, the separateness of those who are called saints is due to God's work. That's why we are saints of the Most High. We are saints in Jesus Christ. The stress is upon God's work of setting us aside unto himself. Indeed, in Romans 1, verse 7, Paul uses the instructive expression, called to be saints. Notice he doesn't say, called because you are saints. He says, called to be saints. And he places that in parallel to the expression, called to belong to Christ Jesus. So called to be a saint is the same as called to belong to Christ Jesus. Now, you understand the significance of what I'm saying then, is that those who are called saints are not, for the most part, called saints in the Bible because of the holiness of their character. They are called saints because God has done a work in their life to set them aside, to pull them out from the world and consecrate them to himself. And thus, all believers in Jesus Christ, all those chosen by God are saints. 
All of us are people set apart unto God by his sovereign mercy. In the first chapter of Colossians, verse 2, Paul uses the term saints in parallel to the term brothers. To be a saint is to be a Christian brother or sister. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, the saints is used in parallel to the church of God. To be a saint is to be a member of the church of God. Indeed, throughout the book of Ephesians, which we're going to be looking at here in a moment, throughout this book, Paul uses the phrase, all the saints, for Christians everywhere. He uses that in chapter 1, verse 15. He uses that in chapter 3, verses 8 and 18, and in chapter 6, verse 18. Repeatedly, Paul speaks of all the saints, and all of us are. Not because we are saintly, though, not because we are holy, not because we're particularly pious or good people, but because God in sovereign mercy reaches down from heaven and pulls us out of the world and says, you are set apart to me, you belong to me. He makes us believers in Jesus Christ and therefore we are set apart. We're a holy people. Not by anything we've achieved, but by what God has done in and for us. Now, of course, I have to add having corrected this misperception of what it is to be a saint, I do have to add that those who are saints, in the sense of being set apart by God unto himself, should strive to manifest a character which befits that status. They should aim to emulate the very holiness of God himself. If we're going to be called holy ones, because he's done his work in us and set us apart from the world unto himself, then we should show his character. And we see that very well in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 and read with me at the 14th verse where Peter says, As children of obedience, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lust in the time of your ignorance, but like as he who called you is holy, be yourselves also holy in all manner of living, because it is written, Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter makes it very clear that we are to be children of obedience. We are not to fashion our lives after that of the unbelieving world out of which we've been called. That's former livelihood to us. We now look back upon that as past tense. Now we try to form our lives according to the holiness of God. So as the one who called us is holy, we should try to be holy. If we are called saints, we ought to try to show saintliness in our behavior. And Paul tells us in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verses 25 to 27, that this is the very reason Christ gave himself up for the church, as Paul says, that he might sanctify it, that is, make it holy, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it. And then Paul concludes by saying that it should be holy and without blemish. And so let's see if we can put this together. Why are we called saints? Not because of our accomplishments, not because of the piety within us, not because of the goodness we have displayed. We are called saints because God has set us apart. God has made us a holy people by his choice and his mercy. But those who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ should try to emulate the character of the one who called them. As the one who called us is holy, so we should try to be holy. Indeed, Jesus died for us precisely that we would be a people that are holy and without blemish before him. The saints, to put it very simply, should try to be more saintly. But you see, we have to realize we aren't, are we? We're called saints, but we don't look like saints. We're called saints, but we don't sound like saints. 
We're called saints, but a lot of the evidence is against that because the saints just aren't very saintly. I mean, just look at the saints in the Corinthian church. Paul has the most elaborate expression for sainthood at the beginning of the Corinthian epistle. They are sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints. It's made very clear. And yet look at the Corinthian church. Not a very saintly assembly. Not a very holy gathering together of pious people full of good works. The Corinthian church was absolutely reprehensible. If I knew the character of the Corinthian church and they extended me a call that is ten times more than I'm making in this congregation, I wouldn't take it for a moment. It was a terrible church, full of dissension, divided any number of ways, full of pride, full of argumentation, full of hostility within the ranks. It was a church that lacked discipline. Lax living was there and there was a... There was a Giving in to that, the church just didn't do anything about it. Moral laxity characterized the members as well as the leadership of that church. It was a horrible church. Look at the disorder at the Lord's table. People were eating their meals and finishing the Lord's Supper before certain people had even arrived. They were so disdainful of one another. Some people came drunk to the Lord's table at Corinth. And so we can go on and on. You look at the disorder, you look at the false teaching, the heretical movements in Corinth. I mean, it was a terrible church. And yet it begins by saying, to those who are saints in Christ Jesus. The saints just aren't very saintly, are they? Of course, we don't need to look at the Corinthian church for our illustration this morning. Just look at ourselves. Look at yourselves. Look at our own congregation. I think you know very well from your own experience that you are not at all what God means for you to be. That in terms of holiness of conduct, in terms of godliness of life and piety of attitude, you all fall so short, I do too, of what God wants us to be. We're far from being without spot or blemish. God calls us saints, but just look at those he calls saints. Look at this congregation. Look at yourself. Do you deserve to be called a saint? I've done a lot of counseling uh, in general, but... Recently, I've been doing a great deal, and I've been impressed by the number of times people begin a counseling session wanting to assure me that, um, well, hopefully we'll still be friends after you find out how bad I am. And I usually say, well, you'd be amazed to know how bad I am. We all have this idea because we come all nice scrubbed and clean to church. We look out that there are a lot of saintly people here. But I know better, because I know you. And though I haven't counseled personally with each and every one sitting in this room, I really get the idea that uh, I've seen enough that I can generalize to say, if what God knows about the darkness of our hearts was to be revealed, we'd all be rather put off from one another. The saints just aren't so saintly. And so, you see, Paul speaks in Ephesians 4 of the perfecting of the saints. If you understood by the word saint, someone who is morally perfect, or nearly so, if a saint is someone who is morally perfect in character, then the expression that Paul uses here would make very little sense. How can you perfect that which is already perfect? <laughs> he speaks of the perfecting of the saints. Well, but in the ordinary use of the word, or in the Roman Catholic use of the word, the saints are perfect. How can you perfect the perfect? How can you perfect the saints? 
So you see that Paul obviously is using the word saint in the biblical sense. We would expect that of Paul. He's using that in the sense we've been describing this morning. There are those who are set apart by God, those who have been chosen by his sovereign mercy, but they aren't very saintly and they need to be perfected. They aren't very godlike. They need to grow up in the Lord. The Greek word that is used in Ephesians 4.12 and is translated perfecting in your Bible can be utilized in at least two ways. We find it in the Bible used two different ways. First of all, it is sometimes used or applied to the work of repairing something, such as a fishing net. It's used for restoring someone, like a brother in first, uh, excuse me, in Galatians 6, verse 1, we read of a brother who is uh, caught in some trespass being restored by those who are spiritual. The word restored is the same word used here, perfected. And so we see it is applied to repairing and restoring. But then secondly, the word can also be applied to making up what is lacking in something. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, we read of the perfecting in faith, meaning what is lacking in your faith is now brought up, is filled in. It's used for um, causing something to attain its full order. Listen to the benediction of Hebrews 13. To make you perfect, perfecting here, to make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. There, you see, you're brought to full order as a Christian. Or it means to bring something to strength and to maturity. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, verses 9 and 10, says that God strengthens and perfects us through affliction. So on the one hand, the word can mean restore and repair. On the other hand, it can mean take that which is already in some form of order and perfect it, bring it along, fill in what is defective, achieve maturity. And I think in Ephesians 4.12, the word is being used in this second sense, although, you know, the first sense is not far from sight. Paul does mean that our perfecting as saints means restoring and repairing those defects in our lives. But I think that the emphasis is upon taking that which, is, that which God has begun in our lives and moving it forward to perfection, maturity, to its goal. Paul speaks of the saints being brought to full faith, perfect order, and maturity. He thinks of believers, if you will, he thinks of believers coming to the full realization of their sainthood. You have been set apart from God. Now God is going to perfect that work so that you act and look like someone who is set aside unto God. The defects in you and the inconsistencies in you and the immaturity that's in you are going to be gradually removed and they're going to be replaced with greater faithfulness and greater zeal and greater spiritual depth. There is a perfecting of God's work of grace within us that takes place. And I just want to ask you this morning, isn't that what all of us want? Isn't that the fondest desire of your heart, that God would perfect you as a saint? Isn't that what God's people, who are committed to Jesus Christ in saving faith, renewed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, want most of all? That their sainthood would be perfected? That they would realize all that God means for them to be? I mean, how often do I preach sermons where, well, we have to step on some toes. We have to indict sinful behavior and attitude. And I can see from the looks on your faces and the comments I receive afterwards that you do want that kind of correction because you don't want to be displeasing to God. You don't want to be immature. You don't want to be inconsistent in your Christian faith. 
You want to be perfected. I think it's our fondest desire to have that take place in our lives. If nothing else, as an expression of loving gratitude to the Savior so that we can give more full glory to God in who we are and how we behave. We want more than anything else to see our Christian lives improved and made perfect, made mature. We want to attain that level of spiritual growth and true holiness to which God calls us and which will give him the greatest pleasure of all in our lives, don't we? And so this morning I'm going to tell you how that can happen. If you really want that, you can have it. Because Paul speaks of it here. This is God's made provision for the perfecting of the saints. It can happen. Now, if I were to offer you some kind of a pill for a price that would accomplish this in the next 48 hours, you take one of these pills every four hours for the next two days and you will be perfected as a saint. My guess is I probably couldn't supply enough of these pills. We would gladly take the perfecting pill. Just give it to me. Instant sainthood. That's what I want. Make it easy. I'll, just, I mean, I'll pay a price. I'll be glad to do a little bit for it. And so, yes, you all want it. But that isn't the way God promises to give it. And if you really do want that perfecting, let's look at what the Bible says. In the broadest context, how are the saints perfected? As we look at Ephesians 4, we can't miss the obvious fact that the context in which we find Paul's expression about the perfecting of the saints is a discourse on the life and ministry of the Christian church as the body of Christ. You see, this perfecting as a saint is something that occurs within the corporate context of the Christian church. And it is so big and it is so large that you cannot miss that. Just consider verses 3 to 6. Paul says, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says there's one body, one Spirit. You're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is over all, through all, and end all. He's speaking of the Christian assembly here. The unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. And he says we're to give diligence to preserve this bond of the Spirit within the church. Diligence. Consider verse 11 and its mention of officers and leaders that are placed within the church. Consider the end of verse 12, which speaks of the work of ministry and building up of the body of Christ. Consider verses 15 and 16, and the image of Christ as the head with every part of his body working in harmony. You see, Paul's extended exhortation has to do with the church of Jesus Christ in terms of which we may pursue, in terms of which we may achieve, our perfecting as saints. And so this inspired and infallible insight of divine wisdom needs to be taken into account if we're going to pursue seriously and sincerely the perfecting that I think you were all telling me you really do want as saints. But that inspired, infallible insight of divine wisdom runs counter to the foolishness of our lives, runs counter to the foolishness of our individualism, and runs counter to our sinful bent towards self-regulation. Just look at how the corporate church is viewed and treated in our day. Does American Christianity in the late 20th century look upon the church as the context for the perfecting of the saints? Is the church necessary for the perfecting of the saints? Is the church absolutely 
crucial for the life of the Christian man or woman? Is the church going to be the first and foremost line of maturing in your faith? That isn't the way we see it in our day and age. I just want to consider some illustrations. In the first place, in our day and age, the church is seen as an expendable option of the Christian life. It's an option and an expendable one. Now, it's great if you have it. You can make use of it, but you don't have to. How many people do I talk to who claim to be Christians who say, well, I don't go to church anywhere. I don't need that. Or they don't say, I don't need that. They practice the I don't need that attitude. I can just read my Bible on my own. Or I listen to tapes. Or I watch the TV. Or I go out and commune with nature. I love that one, the old pantheistic approach to Christian nurture. If I just walk around and have a nature hike, then you see I'm being sanctified somehow, I guess. We have those who see in the church as something that's optional, that's icing on the cake, that's something you don't have to have, but if you choose to have it, that's, uh, that's an option for you, it's okay, but it's expendable. You don't have to follow a life of Christian living and discipleship within the context of a corporate body. John Calvin wrote these words in his commentary on the verse that we're looking at this morning, and they're so to the point I can't help but quote them. I don't often do this, but listen to this paragraph. It's excellent. Calvin says, Our true completeness and perfection consist in our being united unto the body of Christ. But this work, so admirable and divine, the apostle here declares, to be accomplished by the external ministry of the word. From this it is plain that those who neglect this means and yet hope to become perfect in Christ are insane. Such are the fanatics who invent secret revelations of the Spirit for themselves and the proud who think that for them the private reading of the Scriptures is enough and that they have no need of the common ministry of the church. It's written in the days of the Protestant Reformation. Calvin says, you have those who are absolutely insane to think that they can see perfection in their Christian life apart from the body of Christ. But in our day and age, we have not only those who want to put aside the Christian church as a necessity, we have those who see the church or treat the church as a social club. Uh, yeah, a club with religious interest, but nevertheless a social club. And we all want to have that kind of social connection, don't we? But our ties to the church and our zeal for the church and its ministry are about what they are for the Rotary for the Kiwanis. And you know what happens if you're a member of the Rotary and something comes up and you can't make it to a, a monthly meeting of the Rotary. You don't think anything of missing the meeting, do you? I mean, unless you had assumed some responsibility for the program that day, then it's no big deal if you're not there. And the church is kind of like that. It's kind of like a Christian Rotary. When we can make it, we make it. And when we can't, we can't. And it's okay. We also, in our day, have those who see the church as so insignificant that just any will be just fine. You have the attitude toward the church that, well, I mean, we got a church, you know, two blocks down the street here. That, that's a church is a church, right? Kind of like the commercials, says parts is parts, right? Well, churches are churches, right? You know, it's absolutely absurd. You won't even buy your lunch with that attitude in mind. That's what the point of that commercial is. And people will choose a church of Jesus Christ that is supposed to be the context of their perfecting as a saint, saying, well, churches are churches. No, they aren't. If they were, Paul wouldn't have written the book of Galatians, and you could go down to your local Judaizing church, and church is church. 
No, Paul thought the truth was very important. Paul thought good order was very important. Paul thought that fellowship in ministry was very important. The life and the ministry and the message of the church are very important. You don't choose churches, as I said before, like you choose breakfast cereals. It is very important, but not in our day and age. And we have those in our day and age, fourthly, who would have the church operate like a center of weekly entertainment where the spectators have no loyalty or commitment or accountability. I mean, we have these mega churches, and I'm getting to the point where I don't even want to call them churches because it's a scandal to call these assemblies of thousands or hundreds of people where those who serve the Lord's Supper don't even know the people they're serving it to, don't even know the needs of these people, where if you called and asked for an appointment for counseling, you wouldn't know who you were going to talk to as a counselor. That is not the church. That's not the body of Christ. You read Ephesians 4 and you don't see what these mega churches are doing. Because basically what you have here is a program, entertainment. And if you want to come and sit in and for it, that's great. And if you're not there, that's great too. Because it's very impersonal. It's not a body. It's an audience. Well, it's been pretty easy to criticize others and talk about the defects in their view of the church But you see, you know me better than that to think that I'm going to let you off scot-free. Because I think that we not only have these defective views of the church out there in our culture, which are very distressing to me, and I think it shows why we are in such a weak and wimpy day for for the kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth, because the church is not understood, and it's not practicing its ministry in the way that it should. But I think the practice of some people, even here in our own congregation, seems to be that of, well, I guess you could put it in these words. The church is good and does have an important place in theory. We have a lot of theoretical followers of the importance of the Christian church. In actual practice, other things, sometimes our own convenience, must take priority. And so we may have an assembly full of people who are theoretical followers of the importance of the Christian church. Does this apply to you? Well, I'm going to say right now, before you start throwing things at me, I did not devise these questions with anybody in mind, or I didn't devise them with anybody in particular. I didn't say, okay, here's this one, boy, we're really going to go after this person. This is written out of years of seeing the ministry of this church and understanding some of the problems we have and getting programs to work the way they should. I'm going to ask you whether you ever miss church, whether you ever miss worship service, for reasons you would never dare use with your employer if you missed a day of work. Has that ever happened to you? Do you ever say, I can't come to church today for reason X, but you know very well that if that reason applied to a workday situation, you'd get up and go to work anyway, because you wouldn't dare tell your employer that. Would you um, ever tell your employer you are up late last night and so you couldn't come to work today? People tell me that about church all the time. Would you ever tell an employer that you just have too much to do today? It's just too busy a day. I couldn't come to work. I had too much to do. I had to go shopping. I had to wash the car. I had to do all these things. But people tell me that as to why they don't come to worship services. Some people would say, well, I've just been working too hard. I couldn't get to church. Well, you tell that to an employer and he'll say, I feel really sorry. Don't work at all. Don't come back. You don't dare say that to an employer. You wouldn't tell an employer, well, we had a family activity come up today, and so I couldn't report in. I'm sorry about that. See you next week. 
or I had some sports event to attend or some musical performance to get involved with. I'm telling you, my friends, you've got to do your own evaluation. I'll point you the right way, but you draw the conclusions. If you wouldn't tell an earthly Lord that that's your excuse, how on earth are you willing to say to the heavenly Lord, that's why I don't come worship you. I'm just too busy. I'm too tired. I had something come up. We have a lot of theoretical churchmen. In practice, we do things that don't show that we think the context of the church is the perfecting of the saints. Or how about this? We often talk about the need for love and unity. We talk about that in our congregation, and we should. Look at verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians 4. There we speak of lowliness of mind and meekness and patience, forbearing one another, loving one another, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Those are important considerations, love and unity. But then, do we absent ourselves repeatedly from church events where these qualities can naturally develop? I mean, you cannot feel the kind of unity and fellowship and love for the members of this congregation that you're supposed to feel if you don't come to the events of the church where that will naturally develop, where you can really learn to be a friend to somebody else rather than to someone who formally talks at coffee time at church. It will not happen unless you participate. And you've got to participate without the excuses about convenience and all these other things. It's got to be made a priority. Over the last few months, I've had maybe half a dozen people in our church say, we're going to get more involved in the congregation. We really see now how important it is. And yet over the last few months, not one who has said that has shown up at social events, supper and sing, or whatever it may be, especially prayer meetings, where those very qualities could be developed. What level of love and what desire for fellowship do you display if you won't make the effort to come to our sings or to come to our prayer meetings? Especially prayer meeting, I want to stress, because you see, that's where you find out what's really going on in people's lives and what's hurting them and what needs they have and what praises they have. Well, I'll tell you, nothing makes for a stronger friendship than prayer. And so if you don't feel like you're very close to the people in this church, you better start asking, whose fault is that? And then again, we talk about the need for doctrinal truth and understanding, and we should talk about those things. Verses 13 and 14 say, till we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, and to a full-grown man, and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. We should want to grow up in our understanding and knowledge of God's Word. But where's the consistent effort to get to Bible studies? Where's the consistent effort to go to open forum or other teaching opportunities and discussions that we have in our congregation so that you can learn God's Word and its application? Should I draw the conclusion that those of you who do not come to Bible study figure you already know it all? No, you wouldn't want to say that because you know how bad that sounds. But that's what you practice. Now, there may be some of you who actually have a work obligation. Some of you have little children. You have to stay home and take care of them. That's perfectly understandable. But as an overall pattern of life for you or your family, where you don't make it to the teaching opportunities of the church, then apparently you either figure you do know it all or what you don't know you don't need to know. And we talk about religious piety and we talk about worship. But I wonder if they're so low in our scale of values that the thought of attending an early Bible study on Saturday morning, just to return to that illustration, is simply put out of question. I get the impression in talking to some people, that, I mean, it's not even within the ballpark of consideration that you might come to prayer meeting. 
It's not that I really want to, I've made this effort, then something got in the way. It was that 8 o'clock on Saturday morning, you've got to be kidding. And we talk about each believer having a functioning part in the ministry of Christ's body. Paul does that. Look at verse 7. But unto each one of us was grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. In verse 12, about the middle, under the work of ministering, under the building up of the body of Christ. And verse 16, from whom all the body, <clears throat> fitly framed and knit together, through that which every joint supplieth, according to the working and due measure of each several part, makes the increase of the body under the building up of itself in love. We talk about these things, but then so many of us as individuals do absolutely nothing by way of contributing to the work of any of the chairmen in our congregation. You might want to ask yourself right now, which of the various forms of service that are made available and readily available in this congregation am I supporting? Are you helping the evangelism chairman? Are you helping the service chairman or the communion chairman? Let's look at the back of your bulletin when you come in on Sunday morning and say, now which of these areas of ministry do I have something I can contribute to? And if you're not contributing anything to the church, then ask, are you really living up to those vows you took of church membership? Because you didn't come to this church just as a sponge. You came to this church to be a minister, to contribute something to its life, its fellowship, its outreach, its growth. I'm afraid the majority of the work, even in this congregation, which knows better, I think, at least theoretically, than many others, the majority of the work in this congregation is still being shouldered by the minority of the congregation. And so in short, what I want to suggest to you this morning is we often do not care enough to be inconvenienced and we do not hold the church in high enough esteem to give it precedence over our other affairs. And then we wonder why our individual Christian lives are stagnating. Then we wonder why we're not moving on to maturity and perfection. If you removed an eyeball from the living environment of a human body, it wouldn't surprise you at all that the eyeball didn't work anymore and didn't live up to its potential. And likewise, if you remove yourself from the living spiritual environment of the body of Christ, you cannot hope that you will live up to your Christian potential or reach vital maturity in Christ. The context for the perfecting of the saints, to put it very simply, is the life and ministry of the church. Paul says we need to be perfected, perfected as saints, and he says that right in the middle of one of his lengthiest discourses about the church. You want to be a perfect Christian? Then start getting involved in the church. There's no two ways around that. But that's the broad context. The particular context has to be seen in closing here. The particular context as to how the saints are perfected is found in verse 11. Because verse 11 starts the sentence that's continued in verse 12 with the words, for the perfecting of the saints. What specifically within the life of the church is given for the perfecting of the saints? Here it is. And he gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. You see, Christ has given gifts to his church. If you go back to verse 7, we read that unto each one of us was grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And the explanation is this, and it's, very, it's, it's a beautiful picture theologically, if you can put it together in your mind here. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. This is a quotation from the 68th Psalm. And now Paul interprets it in verse 9. Now this he ascended, what is it but he that also descended into the lower parts of the earth? 
Very simply, the one who ascends had to first descend. The same Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and descended into hell has now ascended on high that he might now be the one who fills all things. And from that position of omnicompetence, from that position of being Lord over all, from that position of being the exalted Savior of men, he's given gifts to his church. And verse 11 tells you, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Time won't allow for us to talk about these offices that pertain to the uh, early days of the Christian church that are not perpetual offices. But I do want you to focus here at the end of this exhortation at what Paul says about pastors and teachers. Christ is given as a gift to the church, pastors and teachers. He refers here to the elders of the congregation. If you look at Acts, the 20th chapter, Paul calls the elders of Ephesus. By the way, this is written to Ephesus too. He calls the elders at Ephesus shepherds of the flock and overseers. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter calls the elders under shepherds because the good shepherd has placed them in the flock. And so, very simply put, Paul tells us that the most specific and particular way in which God has provided for the perfecting of the saints is by giving to his congregations the gift of elders. One of the God-given assurances that the Lord is perfecting this congregation is that he's gifted us with another elder today. And if we will offer to that new elder our willing submission and show him a teachable spirit, and if we will cooperate in his efforts to lead us and sustain us, if we will be with him in trial and bear him up in prayer and offer him our obedience when he shows us the way, then we will not only show ourselves to be sheep of the good shepherd who has set the new under-shepherd in our congregation, has placed him over the flock, but we can enthusiastically look forward to the perfecting of the saints in this congregation. The saints need to be more saintly. And one of the ways in which God is going to see to that is by giving us officers and elders, shepherds who will show the flock the way. We praise God this morning then that we celebrate not simply that we are saints by God's grace, not simply that we broadly have the church of Jesus Christ as a context in which to be perfected, but more particularly that Jesus is giving a gift to the church today. You know, this is the Christmas season. We think about giving gifts to others because of God's great gift to us. But you see, God's gift didn't end in the sending of His Son. Because the Bible says His Son, who has now come and died for our sins and ascended on high, He's now giving gifts to the church. And this Christmas season, we're the first to receive gifts because this morning we're receiving the gift of a new elder. Let's pray. Lord, we ask You to put within our hearts a sincerity about that desire which we would all express to be perfected as saints. And Lord, we ask that you would put within our hearts a faithfulness to your word, that we would not devise rationalizations, that we would not devise excuses for ourselves or alternative measures for our perfecting as your people, but that we would understand in all faithfulness what you have taught us, that the perfecting of your people takes place within the body of Christ. And Father, we pray as well that you would put within our hearts gratitude this morning that you continue to give gifts to the church for that very purpose of helping your saints to be perfected. We thank you that this day you give us a new officer, a new elder, who can direct the flock into paths of righteousness and show us not only by the quality of his own life, 
but also by the faithfulness of his teaching, what we should be and what we should do as your people. Father, we do thank you for the way in which you have operated in this world in calling a people unto yourself and making us saints. And we thank you that you continue to show your divine activity and operations in our lives and that you promise to perfect us and to bring your work of grace to its full maturity. We ask that you would turn each and every one of us away from the excuses that we may use to avoid the ministry of the church. Turn us away from our lack of submission or individuality when it comes to following our elders, and especially our new one, so that we might enjoy that measure of perfection which you have ordained for us as we see it within the body of Jesus Christ, our dear Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.